millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. I am furious. Absolutely apoplectic with rage. I'll tell you why. I've got a Garmin. I've got one of those watches. It's a Garmin thing. It tracks you when you do your exercise, when you're walking, your steps, when you're running, when you're sighting. It does all that shit. Gets your, your heartbeat. What's my heartbeat at this moment in time? It's 70. Should be going up now as I get more and more. Oh, fuck, 74. Uh, anyway... Every so often, the watch buzzes and tells you, move, move. And every single time, it makes me angry. I was just moving before I sat down to do this podcast. Why can't you, if you're so fucking brilliant at technology, Garmin, realize that I've stopped moving and I deserve the right to sit down without you badgering me to get up and move again? I'll move when I like. Goddamn watch. Anyway, apart from that, I'm fine. I hope you're fine. Hope you're doing well this week. The football is back. Arsenal return this weekend. We go to Vicarage Road to play Elton John's Watford, of course. Saturday evening kickoff, so we got to wait all day Saturday, and then it's Saturday evening. And that kind of that kind of messes with your schedule a bit, doesn't it? Are you going to go out on Saturday night after the game? Is it a bit late to leave the house by the time the match ends and I do all the, the bits and pieces that I've got to do for the website? Is it too late? Am I too old now to consider going out at 9 o'clock or 9.30? I probably am. I feel more comfortable coming home at that time than going out these days. 
That says a lot about me. Anyway, I don't want to complain. I don't want to rant. I don't want to turn this into a a list, a litany of complaints that I could go on and on about. I don't want to do that because we're here for, for different things, for entertainment purposes and for hilarity and jollity and japes and a bit of arsenal thrown in. So in a few minutes' time, I'm going to be talking to Amy Lawrence. She is involved in a film called 89, which is about the... Uh, the fateful night we won the league at Anfield in 1989. I know the uh, 63,412 Arsenal fans who were in the ground that night will remember it well, as will all of us who uh, who watched it on TV, wherever we might have been. It was one of those unforgettable nights. So we're going to talk to Amy about uh, the movie. We're going to talk to her about the night itself and uh, a bit of uh, a bit of general Arsenal chat as well. So that's coming up for you uh, in just a few minutes' time. Uh, just to uh, recap on what's happened in the international break, Shkodran Mustafi has got injured. He'll be out for four to six weeks. So that's a bit of a blow for our uh, our central defenders. Uh, Callum Chambers has signed a new deal, which has come a little bit out of the blue. Nobody really expected that, not least because there doesn't appear to be anybody at the club anymore who can deal with contracts. Oh, apart from that new contract guy we got in the summer. So we've uh, we put him to work. Well done to that man. Got Callum Chambers all signed up. Mark Overmars was linked with a, a return to the club. Mark Overmars, who scored uh, some some goals for us down the years in our first title-winning season, 97-98 under Arsene Wenger, first title-winning season under Arsene Wenger. Just wanted to be uh, really clear that that's what I meant. I wasn't saying that was our first title or anything like that. You know, the way things get taken out of context these days, you've got to be clear. Anyway, there was rumours that he was going to come in. He's reached agreement with Arsenal to come in next summer as who knows what. Not director of football. He won't be director of football. We know that. He'll be like football executive or football dude or something like that. Uh, he'll get an office maybe. But uh, that that was all played down by Arsene Wenger, by the club who said, no, nothing like that is happening for now. Tapping their noses, etc., etc. Whether it's over Mars or whether it's somebody else, it's got to be somebody. Arsenal really needs somebody to uh, to fill the gap because Dick Law is gone. We have no Dick. We are Dickless. Since the end of September, he has gone back to America. And, you know, there's a January transfer window coming up in which Arsene Wenger said he might consider the sale of Alexis Sanchez and Mesut Ozil. He said you can't rule out the possibility in this situation. It's, it's possible. Who's going to do it? Ivan? Arson, they could, but you need the guy. You need the guy in there to do the the handshake and the back slap and the come round. Come on, you know the you know that guy. That, come on, give us some money for him. Come on, that fella. We need that fella in January. We don't need him next summer. We need him soon because there's work to do in January. So hopefully we get that sorted. What's on my goddamn phone making noises? If it's not my garment, it's my phone. And uh, apart from that, in the international break, some of the players are happy. Some of the players. Won't be so happy. Alexis Sanchez won't be going to the World Cup. So, hurrah, he gets a summer off. Unfortunately, it's the summer in which he'll probably leave the club. So, whatever team he joins next uh, July or June, or whatever team he agrees to join in January, he can talk to other clubs from January onwards. Other clubs across Europe, not other Premier League clubs. The rule works a little differently. They will get a fully rested Alexis Sanchez. He won't be slugging his heart out in Russia, rushing around the pitch like a madman, training like a madman. He'll probably be doing those uh, things anyway, just not on television in front of everybody at the World Cup. And Aaron Ramsey and Wales, they won't be going to the World Cup. Will he be disappointed? I'm sure he will. 
failure to beat Ireland means that Wales do not qualify once more for the World Cup. And I'd say for Ramsey, who obviously has ambitions to play at a World Cup, that's probably like seeing 407 rhinos shot in front of him. You know, he's a big rhino guy. Don't shoot rhinos, please. They're, you know, they are, they are terrifying, I think. Rhinos with the, you know, they, they're like armored cows. You just don't know when they could turn on you. And they've got like this protective plating and a horn, you know, but really, unless one is coming straight for you and you happen to have a gun and you need to shoot the rhino to protect yourself, to continue living, and if you don't feel like sacrificing your life for that of a rhino, then don't shoot them. That's my advice. That's the piece of wisdom that you can take from this podcast. But we'll have to see. Will Alexis be unhappy? Will Ramsey be unhappy? Will they be focused? Remember Andre Arshavin when Russia didn't qualify for the World Cup? He was so, so sad for so many years. He went on a kind of a biscuit spiral. It wasn't biscuits. It was Battenberg. He was, uh, he was never the same again. God, everything's making clunky noises. So look... We might just touch very briefly on the team news uh, for Saturday's game after I chat with Amy. But for now, come on, let's do it. Let's start talking about 1989. Uh, This is me and Amy Lawrence. Let's go back a little bit before we focus on that season because I think it's it's worth just stepping back a, a few years. Arsenal hadn't won the league for seven no eighteen years. It was nineteen seventy one was the last time Arsenal had won the league. The last trophy was nineteen seventy nine in, in the FA Cup. There were losing finals in the uh, in the FA Cup in nineteen eighty, the Cup Winners Cup as well. But the eighties were a fairly barren period for Arsenal. Um, and that started to change around 1986 when a former player and then a former boss of Millwall, George Graham, was appointed. Yeah, and, and what's great about that is hindsight being the wonderful thing that it is. Um, if you went back to that summer when George Graham was appointed, it would be overstretching the mark to say that everybody was really excited. Mm. Here was a guy who... For a start, when he, you know, he'd been a been a, a legendary player and part of the 1971 double winning side, but he was known as the stroller. <laughs> he was a guy who looked good and took his. I mean, in many ways, you know, the sort of uh, one would one would hesitate to make stupid comparisons, but that slightly languid thing that people don't like about Urza with his body language and that he always looks quite vain and you know that <laughs> makes sure he looks good and those were sort of some of the. The characteristics, I suppose, of, of uh, that were associated with with George Graham as a player. He was a guy who was never in a rush. He, he, he everybody knew he liked um, the good life outside of football, um, and he was not ever, even amongst his teammates, somebody that they had nailed down to be a manager. In fact, he was probably the last one on the list because. He didn't really give that much impression as a player that he would go home and study football and think about football and be tactical and all those things that, in fact, he turned into. Um, he subsequently, when he finished playing, went off and got got stuck into coaching uh, and 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 made a success of things in what was then the old second division, um, a second tier of, of, of English football with Millwall. But, you know, to appoint a Scottish manager who was, a you know, a, a, a quite 
laid-back kind of a player who was in the second division. This was not the sort of thing that people thought was going to rock Arsenal to its foundations. And yet that's exactly what he did. Yeah. He came in, his attitude was he didn't really fancy stars, you know what I mean? Unless they were performing stars. He wasn't interested in fancy Dan's that swanned around picking up what was then a quite nice wage packet and kind of enjoying playing for a London club. And he wanted serious attitude and hunger and determination and desire. I think desire was probably his favourite word. And he set about building a team in that mould, which meant being quite brave and turfing out experienced internationals who held quite a lot of sway in the dressing room, bringing in young, hungry players. They had a fantastic generation. Uh, Tony Adams, Paul Merson, um, Michael Thomas, David Rowcastle, you know, and more. It was a a, a sensational group of players who had come through roughly at the same time. And then he had a brilliant eye for a young, hungry player who was perhaps playing in a lower division or a smaller club and he thought right you'll do for me um, and went scouring the country and picking up Dixon, Winterbone, Bold, Alan Smith, Brian Marwood, Kevin Richardson. Guys who in the main had not been successful yet but he believed that they had a lot more to offer than they'd been able to show in terms of achievements in their career mm. and quite quickly it all began to click and you know, there was a there was a sense that a, a you know a really promising team was developing. Having said that, you can't talk about that era without having the context of Liverpool. Yeah, so dominant. It's quite difficult for probably youngsters today to have any kind of inkling as to how impressive, um, how awe inspiring they were. I mean, the majority of people who weren't Liverpool fans hated them because they were so successful and they were basically jealous of Liverpool because the Manchester all the time yeah. they won the league virtually all the time they won cups loads and loads and loads and and you didn't as a football fan of almost any other team you didn't really think that you had much chance against Liverpool when it came down to it um so the start of the 88 89 season um, well can I can I stop you there before we go on to that can, well, because about three hours and I'm not really you know getting anywhere near to what we've been doing yet but please go on no well I want want to ask you because um, having not won a trophy for so many years the first season that George was in charge he won the League Cup uh, at Wembley against Liverpool um, there was that magical moment when Charlie Nicholas bundled in the goal and he went off dancing with with Perry Groves Um, when you look back at that, we, we've often talked about how a team that hasn't had success for a while needs to believe that they can achieve something, needs to believe that they can win things before they can really go on and do it. I mean, uh, it, it hasn't quite worked in recent years with Arsenal. We thought maybe after so many years without a trophy, winning the FA Cups might be the thing to springboard the team to to title success. But But looking back on it, I think that was a really important win for Arsenal, even if the the final the following year didn't go as well as everyone would have liked. Um, but it, it sort of perhaps instilled in those uh, some of those younger players as well, there is a belief that you can go and you can beat a team like Liverpool, who were just so dominant uh, at that time. They were they were untouchable almost. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I'm, I kind of, that 1987 League Cup 
win that you talk about Littlewoods Cup as it was then uh, against Liverpool in a way when Arsenal did beat Hull and in in the cup final in 2014 and, and finally put an end to a little bit of a barren spell and like you say I think it did fuel the players with a sense of of belief that they can do something um, for themselves but I still think that go, look going into that season Arsenal was 16-1 to to win the league and Liverpool were evens mm. That's a pretty substantial gap to be made up by an inexperienced team who's never won a title before. Um, you know, we're not we're not talking about something like Leicester uh, of a couple of seasons ago, but there was still uh, there was a pretty big leap of faith to imagine that a team like Arsenal in that in that era would be winning the league at the expense of a team like Liverpool in that era. Yeah. Um, there was a there was a what felt like a really considerable gap although as the season went on and they played each other a few times in different competitions it was clear that there was a you know there was a closeness that was and that the Arsenal team felt that they were they were able to compete you know eyeball to eyeball with Liverpool there was a brilliant league, league cup game at Anfield where Dave Rocastle scored an absolute scorcher wow you know it felt like a big stepping stone to be able to go to Anfield mm. uh, the air of the you know as close as damn it to invincible sort of imperious team of the age and really at times outplay them and, and probably be unlucky to have only ended up with a draw yeah and they thought they were something there but i think what what we what was interesting about the making of this film is that you want to get the context and the backstory and all this kind of stuff but what happened more and more as we were looking into things and going back over things and talking to people is that you have you know you evoke that what was going on at the time and it's very nostalgic um, culturally socially what it was like to be a football fan then what the game was like then um, but also you can you, you know there were so many interesting little things that happened during the course of that season but what you don't want to do with a film like this is make it a sort of fancy end of season roundup yeah you know there's a real proper drama going on in this in in that in what happened that season um with some hugely significant strands to it not the least that that the Hillsborough disaster happens towards the end of that season and you can't you know Arsenal but people associated with Arsenal have extremely um massively strong feelings about what happened at Anfield 89. If you speak to most fans of a certain age, it's the one. Mm. It's the one above all else. But you cannot really have that genuine conversation. It was The two things are bound together. You had one of the worst events and one of the m- most profoundly upsetting thing to ever happen if you love football. Yeah. In April in 1989. And six weeks later, this thing happened that for Arsenal supporters is probably the highlight of their, you know, the best thing ever, the highest of the high. It was pretty extreme to go from one to the other in what was quite a short space of time, really. Yeah. Uh, so those two events are have a relationship within themselves, uh, apart from the quite literal fact that one doesn't happen without the other, because... Uh, Liverpool and Arsenal, which ended up being the, you know, essentially the playoff for the league title, that, you know, the very final game, everybody else had finished playing and the whole of football stopped to watch this, this showdown first against second winner takes all essentially. Um, but it, it was really 
you know, that, that, that game was originally set to be played the week after the Hillsborough disaster. So the fact that football actually stopped for two weeks, which it did at the time, and nobody knew what was going on, whether it would start again, what was going to happen. Nobody even wanted to think about it because it wasn't, it was too, it was almost too overwhelming mm. to think, are you supposed to care about football anymore? Does it matter? Yeah. Should we be doing this? It was complex, deeply, deeply complex and emotionally loaded moment in time. So you've gone from this terribly difficult, um, almost unimaginably unbearable thing to a situation where sport becomes, it's hard to say, but it, it meant so much meant so much what happened that night obviously not to, to the people of Liverpool uh, when, when the game was played on the 26th of May and it was the big finale but it was a it was a very very significant point for football and I sometimes think that what went on with the game and the way that the game changed um, you know you realise how pivotal those few weeks were because the game became you know re- reborn and reformed in some way with the response to what happened at Hillsborough with grounds becoming all-seater, with trying to attract different kind of types of fans, um, with trying to monetize it. Uh, it was quite soon you got Sky Sports, uh, the Premier League, the rebranding, the internationalization, people coming in and, and starring from all over the world. It was a very British game yeah. back in '89. You look at the team sheets uh, of that game and it was pretty much ex- exclusively... British and Irish players involved. Um, Bruce Grobelar was the goalie for Liverpool, and it, 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 that was, I think, I think probably the only exception. Unless my memory is playing tricks on me. But can I ask how the 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 Anfield thing played on the minds of of the Arsenal players? Because obviously it was a huge event for for Liverpool, and we know the stories of. Uh, Liverpool players um, attending the funerals and and the impact that it had on that particular community. But as footballers and as people who uh, would have witnessed similar events inside football grounds, which thankfully never had the consequences that that we saw at Hillsborough, uh, it can't have been something that the Arsenal players were blind to uh, or immune from as well. Not at all. And I think actually for some of the players who we spoke to all these years down the line, you know, the, the impact of, how, you know, how confused I think they felt at that time um, maybe came out all these years later and trying to articulate what they thought and how they felt or how they dealt with it or tried to deal with it or weren't sure what to do. I mean, in many ways, I think football became a way of, them being able to try and process it because it was it, one, you know, they were told what to do. They were told that football was stopping and they were told when football was starting again. And then you go in and you train and you start to play and you start to try and win matches and do the things that your that is your normal life. Mm. And in some ways, I think that that was a mechanism for not having, you know, for not avoiding, but trying, you know, not, not having to really deal with the reality of what had happened yeah. um, but you know the other thing that, that became interesting in the, in the try and construction of this film obviously it, it goes it takes a big emotional turn at that point but the game itself as the, the more that we spoke to people about it along the way and the more that they were going through the details of their recollections of that famous 
day uh, of the game at Anfield, the more we realised that actually the game gets stretched. So instead of um, it taking up a, a, a kind of small proportion of the film, it's it's the bulk of it revolves around the actual day um, because people's memories of it are so special, so detailed, so crystal clear and so emotive still. And what's quite interesting is that you get the feeling almost like you're watching a live game because it's broken down so much and it's, you know, so deconstructed that it feel instead of feeling like you're watching something that happened in the past, when you're watching it, you feel like you're watching it again live for real now. It's quite interesting. Yeah. It's kind of in the past and in the present at the same time and you, you get bound up in it all over again. Um, <laughs> so it's been, it's been really exciting to yeah. have a go at trying to translate the... Um, the 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 feelings around that that game. I mean, there was there was um, in the build up to the game like a sort of sense of missed opportunity from an Arsenal point of view because there was a to put the game in context there was a home defeat to Derby and Liverpool then beat I think it was West Ham wasn't it they beat them five one which gave them. Uh, a lead on goal difference, which meant that... I mean, this is how tight it was. Uh, Arsenal, if they won the game, would be level on points with Liverpool, but they had to win by two clear goals because they would have had more than two clear goals or more because anything else um, would have seen Liverpool win the, the league on goal difference. Uh, Arsenal, as it as it turned out, obviously won the game. We're not uh, making any spoilers here, but they won it on goal scored, not just goal difference. The goal difference was the same, but Arsenal won the league by virtue of having scored more goals. It could not be any tighter. Yeah, and the last chance comes in stoppage <laughs> time of the entire season. I mean, it, it's if you went to Hollywood with it, you don't know whether they'd laugh you out of town or whether they'd say, actually, this is exactly what we want because it's so unbelievable and yeah, um, an, an extraordinary. It, it was just something that you can imagine... If you you know, it just seemed stranger than real life that it actually happened, or that it was going to boil down to that moment, and the you know the 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 tension of that falling, that chance falling to Michael Thomas as it did, um, and that was one of the one of the great treasures of the experience of making this film was actually being able to ask him to relive what he was thinking and feeling in that moment and and what his teammates thought of the fact that it was him well i'd say virtually all of his teammates seemed to give the impression that they really felt if there was one man on earth that you want to be in that situation with everything on his shoulders and in you know resting on his boot in the last seconds of a season you'd want you'd choose michael thomas i may be in the trailer the, i think it's nigel winterburn who goes i'm just standing there going shoot Shoot, will you do it? Do it, and like it's. I I know I've watched it. I don't know how many times in my life, and I'm sure everybody listening has seen it countless times in their lives. But every single time, every single time, there's just a part of me that thinks that one touch. He's taken one touch too many. He's he's gonna get blocked. Um, but obviously didn't. But I mean, there is there is that. Even when you watch it now, it's hard to escape 
the the feeling that you had while watching it live because it was such a remarkable thing because of what it meant and the impact that it had for for us as Arsenal fans to see the club win the league after so many years but then win it in that fashion it's it's inescapable it's like uh, some people if they get the smell of something it transports them back to a place I don't know how to describe it but every time I see that I, th- I think he's going to just hold on to it too long we, we came across a photograph that I'd not seen before as well in, in kind of going through all the all the stuff uh, in the making of the film and um, it was an angle that it, it, it honestly looks like Ray Houghton's got his foot on the ball <laughs> as Michael Thomas is about to, to hit it's, it's extraordinary you look at it and you think how, how is it possible that actually Houghton doesn't doesn't clear the ball and divert it because it looks like he's got it it's that close it's wafer thin mm. you know, the margin between you know the story ending in a different way was staggeringly close people will ask because it's a story that everybody knows so well what, what what's new i mean what what did you discover were there things that you discovered while making this that weren't necessarily in the public domain uh, people's stories perhaps uh, hadn't been told uh, I, I guess you'd expect me to say yes um i, I mean there was a lot of detail that I, that was really eye-opening um even to a nerd like me so uh and just hearing the way that the people involved um recalled with this fantastic clarity uh exactly the things that they were thinking and feeling at specific moments and the breakdown of certain things that they were told or the people said to them or that they said to other people and the little bits of color and the little anecdotes um just really bring it to life and like I say, it gives you that sense of being in it. You feel a bit like you're in the story. Um, and, there, and the other thing that was great is that we were able to access a, a camera that they had running all night from a vantage point, basically pitch side by the dugouts. And it was n- not used very often during the um, during the uh, broadcast of the game because they were using much wider images on the whole but you get this kind of you get this view and it ran for 90 you know i think virtually 90 minutes you get this view it's as if you're on the pitch um like between people's legs and with the ball moving around and it's really close to the action so that's another thing that that is quite atmospheric because it just gives you a different feeling to even if you've watched the video a thousand times of the game it's not how you're used to seeing it there's different angles and different details that come about come about Mm. yeah i I have to say i can't wait i can't wait to see this just because it 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 looks from the trailer like like nothing we've seen before in terms of 1988 and it's difficult isn't it i suppose to to try and tell a story that everybody knows so well and to try and find a new way to tell it was that a very conscious decision or was that something that you you felt you had to do before you started making this that it had to go beyond the usual sort of narrative. Well, I mean, you, you obviously you, you fantasize about making the best thing you can possibly make and making it as original and compelling uh, as it can possibly be. And there are all sorts of, you know, difficulties along the way. Um, you know, what's amazing is how little uh, footage there is of fans. Mm. Um, you know, even photographs. Uh, at one point I went out to Twitter and said, you know, anyone, anyone of the millions of people who went up to Anfield that night, um, take a camera with them because even finding pictures of fans 
you know, around the ground, inside the ground, on the coaches, on the motorways, whatever. It's quite scarce because you, you forget. But, but, you know, nowadays everybody has access to some kind of camera, usually in their pocket, on their phone. And in those days, you, if you took a camera into a ground, it would probably be confiscated. Yeah. So lots of people did take a camera to to eat as event an event as massive as something. We just had this whole conversation about selfie gooners inside the stadium and this and that. But <laughs> you know, this is this was miles before. I mean, you know, there was a, a a guy who was talking about um one of his best. It's one of the photographers who went up there to work that night who uh, 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 has some great great tales of his own perspective. And he said his favorite image isn't something he took a photograph of that night. He he was driving back down the motorway and they stopped up at a service station and he saw this saw this Arsenal fan um, buy a public payphone because if you wanted to speak to someone in 1989 and go, hey, we're all champions, we won the league, you had to go to payphone. Pay you couldn't communicate <laughs> with them any other way um, and you had to hope that they were sitting by a phone attached to a wall to answer it. Yeah. So, and he... This guy has apparently his Arsenal shirt was ripped to bits. His face, his nose was splattered across his face. He looked an absolute mess, and he was crying like screaming down the phone, singing champions, champions like j- j- jigging around and dancing. <laughs> and like this three a.m. Im- image of like one random guy on the end of a phone is what sort of stuck in his mind. And there's, you know, everybody has their own little things that they remember that they saw or that they felt. And it is one of those things. And this was one of the reasons why I think it. People, you know, it was a, an idea where we were fortunate enough that Universal Pictures um, backed it. And I think one of the things that attracted them to it, apart from the story, it being a great a great moment and a great story with a lot of depth to it, is it's a bit of a where were you moment. You know, mm. I remember where I was when moment. Sure. Um, and even people who don't really care about Arsenal uh, – I know plenty of people who tell me that they remember exactly where they were. One of them, I was talking to a friend the other day and he said, I remember it vividly. He's not an Arsenal fan. He said, we grew up, we didn't have a telly. And I remember it really well because we went around my grandma's house to watch it on telly. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And there's just zillions of little th- things that, that come to people's mind about it's, it. Is, it's like it transforms people back in time if you're as old as we are. <laughs> yeah, maybe or or older. I don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, it's released what on November twentieth. Yes, so um, hopefully uh, anybody who feels tempted, I think it's all available anyway now for like pre-order and stuff, and all the usual outlets where you can get these kind of things. And there's still discussions ongoing about uh, where else it might appear and. and uh, We'll have to watch that space a little bit, but um, yeah, we're, we're we're hoping that basically people who want to watch it enjoy it. If they enjoy it half as much as we enjoy making it, then I think that would be really pleasing. Mm, I think you've pretty much sorted out every Arsenal fan's Christmas uh, present uh, for for this uh, for this particular year. Wake up and find a DVD shape in their in their stocking. People still use DVDs, don't they? <laughs> Do they? <laughs> a Beta Max video version. I hope you're bringing it out on that. Um, all right. Well, listen. Good luck, of course, and I hope it goes uh, amazingly well. I'm sure it will because it is a, a fantastic story. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Uh, speaking of Christmas, can, can I ask you a little bit about what your thoughts are on the, funnily enough, Arsenal versus Liverpool game due to be scheduled on the 23rd, but more and more it appears like it's going to be played on the 24th of December. Um, should we have a couple of days off at Christmas? Is there a scope for, to give people a break to spend time with friends and family or is this the way that football is going now have we just got to accept that when we uh, we have people like Sky and BT who paid so much money for the rights to football that they can pretty much do what they want look uh, in my dream world and I'm not talking about over Christmas and New Year but I think that we should have a couple of weeks off never mind a couple of uh, days off mm. I think that the fact that we're still operating without a winter break in um, English football is is bizarre. Um, I often sort of put myself in the minds of or the experiences of the players, and uh, we don't do this very often as individuals. Everybody just thinks they're paid so much they must be able to withstand anything. And um, uh, I read the interview that was in the Guardian with Chris Kirkland, the former yeah. goalkeeper, um, just a couple of hours ago where he was very uh, candid about his struggles with depression. And I, I do think culturally we've become kind of in quite a dangerous place where everybody feels that they can say whatever they think about this player or that player or that manager or whoever is involved in football as if they're impervious to feeling these pressures because they earn so much money, which of course is a nonsense. And I just think that the kind of mental strain 
forget about money because it's not that's not the conversation. But the mental strain that we are putting these guys under to be under complete scrutiny uh, on a daily basis um, to an extent, but certainly on a kind of weekly or twice a week basis when they're involved in games that are being broadcast, that are being analysed, that are being, you know, deconstructed by every second on a minute by minute on the internet or on Twitter or Mm. Facebook or whatever people are doing. Um, I don't think it's that easy to live with. And when you think about how, uh, even in just Arsenal's case, you know, the the majority of players had a big tour uh, to very, very far away places in the summer in in, in pre-season. And that was busy, you know. Pre-season used to be going to Australia and hiding away in some little gorgeous spa town where there was like, you know, three men and a dog and a sponsor dressed up as Ronald McDonald kicking off the game uh, or whatever was going on. Yeah. And it was it was very relaxed. And it's pretty intense from the, from the day they return after what kind of a holiday they get. And that's going to run right through to, you know, World Cup, if you're involved in the World Cup, which number of players will be and then it starts again and I think most most of us in ordinary jobs in ordinary lives kind of need a need a week off here and there even if you don't go anywhere just stop your job and stop your nonsense and switch off and do something else for a bit I know I really value a break every now and again Mm -hmm. um I'm not shy to admit it and I just feel that we're really loading the players and and to an extent managers quite dangerously. And even for fans, I mean, I think if you look around, you know, the, the grounds now, and it's not just the Emirates, um, I think you can see it at most grounds, increasingly large sort of dots of uh, unused seats. Um, there is more apathy because it's, it's just so continuous. And, you know, feel, you know, going back to those old days of the 80s or 90s or whatever, it, you, can you remember how exciting it was when the season starts again? Because you really didn't, you hadn't seen the players. Yeah. You yeah. hadn't seen them for two or three months. Um, you hadn't heard a great deal about them because there was precious little coverage in papers in those days, apart from, you know, very kind of proper news of somebody moved or something. But there was no gossip. There was no... Um, think pieces about how this team might do or that player might settle. It was just, it, what you know, people didn't really talk about football for a couple of months. And, you know, pre-season games weren't particularly for public consumption. So when the first game of the season came round, you absolutely couldn't, it was like it was like a must-be-there thing to go to the first game of the season and see the team. Um, but now you've probably watched seven or eight games on streams all through the summer. Yeah. So you kind of, I just worry slightly that we're creating an environment and it's an unstoppable sort of juggernaut to the point where it wouldn't be that, you know, we're sitting here now talking about a Christmas Eve game and I wouldn't be amazed if in a year or two you're saying, wow, 
Should Arsenal really be playing their New Year's New Year's Day fixture in Jakarta? Or yeah, or should Arsenal not be playing on Christmas Day? I mean, it, I, I get what you're saying. We're in 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 many ways we're we're creating we're creating the the monster. We're feeding the monster because there is such a demand for for football. But I think from a fan's point of view as well, you think about Liverpool fans who've got to spend. Uh, the Christmas Eve, traveling to London, uh, watch the game, then back to Liverpool. Uh, you know, is there anything that fans can do to let people that run the game know that there is a line? I mean, can people be mobilized enough to say, look, enough is enough? There will be people, of course, for whom a Christmas Eve game is going to be great fun. There'll be people who don't have huge family commitments, who don't have to travel, who live locally. They go watch the Arsenal. They can go down the pub on Christmas Eve, and it's fantastic. But I think for the vast majority of fans, maybe I can't say the vast majority of fans, but for a lot of fans, certainly the ones that are feeding back to me on this story, you know, there are family issues. There are uh, there are time zone issues. You know, there are there are issues with the day itself. The twenty fourth is a day on which uh, some countries celebrate Christmas. So. So it just feels like fans are not being considered and we grow used to that we we all talk about well they don't care what fans think but is there a way or is it have we gone beyond the point where what fans think actually matters or 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 what they do could actually change anything it's a good question and i would love to think that fans can mobilize somehow and stop such such things happening um I do feel, you know, particularly for the travelling Liverpool fans, I think it's it's really quite unjust to expect them to come down for a game, you know, that's an important game for them, you know. Um, but, I mean, you almost think, and I hate this, because people say, well, don't go, like, protest, you know, don't, you know, mm. if, if nobody went. But that's that's a really... That's a personal uh, choice. And that's, that's an really individual choice. That's a thing to put on someone who values their attendance at football matches as being a big part of their identity. Of course. It's, you know, I think it's an individual thing. anyone else to say, don't go, make your process, you don't have to go. Well, you know, if that's what you want to do and you can afford to to travel all over the, you know, long distances to, to, to support your team and, and that's what makes, that's a, one of the best parts of your fine in your life if you were able to do it. Who's anybody else to say don't do it yeah. or make it so difficult for people? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would love to see, um, given how much money there is now that TV pours into it, they really ought to actually almost cover all transport for visiting fans for every game. Why not? If they want fans to be there as part of the spectacle, I mean, we're not saying free tickets because that you know they're not going to do that, are they? The clubs are not going to sanction that, but. If, if, there, if there's an allocation of 3,000 Liverpool supporters um, for, for a game that they wish to put on on an on a, uh, inhospitable time or day, then they should be running trains or coaches or whatever it is, mm. that are, uh, which at least takes away one part of the potential problem. I mean, what, how that goes down with members of your family, I don't know, because that's <laughs> difficult to... Well, that is, yeah. I mean, it is. People have people have kids and wives and presents to wrap and places to be and people to see and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I just feel like it's going to be. I think attendance will be negatively affected at the Emirates for sure, and I don't know that uh, given the way that attendances have been this season that that's a positive development in any way. Um, 
and fans as part of the spectacle are hugely important, as we know. And if you're doing something which is deliberately going to diminish or dwindle the attendance at a game, I think it takes away from from the spectacle itself. Um, people might stay home and watch on TV, but I don't know. I just feel like this one is a is maybe a line that they they might regret crossing. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be just the precursor to to more football more of the time because that seems to be what people want but uh yeah i just can i ask you a question yeah do you do you watch as much football as you did five years ago on telly or more or less less yeah Mm. much less i think that's I, i i'd be quite interested in a broader sort of um pool of people to ask that question to because you know, it's weird. On one hand, it seems seems counterintuitive that they're putting more stuff on telly and paying more money for it. And yet, I think that there's, you know, people are, are finding it more difficult to watch so much of it just because it's it's a bit overwhelming. Yeah, I, I even find like some weeks, match of the day is like, meh. You know, and I, I feel bad for that at times because it's my job is to write about football, to write about Arsenal. I mean, I'm not watching any any less Arsenal than I ever did, uh, but just what goes on around it, I find it more difficult to sit down and watch, you know, a Super Sunday where it's Burnley against West Ham. Whereas because in the past, the idea of live football was not a novelty, but... You know, I can remember I used to go to the I used to go to the pub every Sunday. Every Sunday to watch the four o'clock game on Sky. This was before we had Sky Sports at home, before we uh, were that fancy, and it was probably around the advent of the Premier League. And it didn't matter who was on, whether it was Arsenal or whether it was anyone else, you go down and just watch the game because it was a game of football live on TV and it was kind of exciting. And I think you're right. There's a saturation point now where you're going, well, fuck, do I watch Premier League or Championship or Liga or Bundesliga or La Liga or, you know, all of the all of the football that's available to you all of the time. It's just like, oh, fuck it. I'll tell you, the, the Europa League's where it's at, mate. I've enjoyed the Europa League. And I had this conversation last week with uh, Kieran from Swiss Ramble. And we both said, just by virtue of it being different, and by virtue of it not yeah, being you know, the it's, same, it's, it's yeah. exciting in its own way. Yeah. But I, just just on the subject of, you know, how much football you watch and stuff uh, and the accessibility to it, guess what the um, viewing figures were for the uh, Anfield 89 Liverpool-Arsenal game? I know this because I do <laughs> Sorry, I see not an international audience, which you can imagine that would have been massive in the yeah. It was just... Something I, I, like, I think it was just probably just shown in England and maybe Scotland. 12 million, something like that, wasn't it? You're not far off. I think it was 13 million. Right. That's a pretty large share of the population who were watching, who would watch telly. And, you know, in those days, like, you know, sort of everybody watched telly because that was kind of, you had what, three or four channels and that was it. So, you know, there was the chance that you were going to work or going to school or whatever it's the next day and that most people have watched the same thing because mm. you didn't have like, like 500 billion <laughs> choices. Um, and but it, but it was such a special thing. I mean, that was actually the first season of live televised football uh, in, in English top division. Do you know, we used to get we used to get live uh, division one football in Ireland on a Saturday oh. at three o'clock. Um, wow. which you guys 
didn't get because of the the rules and regulations there, but we used to get uh, live football on a Saturday. Orte used to show it, um, and you know, quite often it was quite often it was Arsenal. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's amazing that, that twelve or thirteen million people who watched that Anfield '89 game. The I just looked it up here. The average viewing uh, figures for a Sky Super Sunday game is mm. one million. Isn't that mm. something? Mm. Well, there you go. Um, I, I remember in that season there was a. Uh, it, it also, what, what became interesting is if you did well on a game on the telly, it meant something more. <laughs> I remember Arsenal winning 4-1 at Nottingham Forest and Forest were under Brian Clough were you know fantastic side back then and uh, it was about October time and and uh, Arsenal went up and, and it was a really good game actually uh, Forest went ahead I think and I think Arsenal missed a penalty it was, it was lots going on and in the end smashed them 4-1 and afterwards not only did you just think wow that was great and you're really happy and this and that but it was like you know, we've won a really big game on the telly. Like everybody's seen it, and it yeah. felt sort of special and exciting yeah. in a way that we've lost that because of this saturation that you're talking I, about. Yeah, it's I, impossible to replicate that sense of an event or an occasion. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder, is it because in some ways people are are now able to watch what they want to watch? It becomes much more an, uh, of an individual thing. So if you're an Arsenal fan, or you know, you you can watch any Arsenal game you want. You don't have to be too tech savvy to find uh, a HD stream on the internet. So you can sit and watch it on your laptop or your iPod or your you, phone. Give me a lesson, Andrew. Yeah, well, I don't want to. Uh, I'm not condoning any illegal activity here, Amy. So, um, but you know, I, I think that's true as well of other fans of other clubs. That if you're a United fan or a Tottenham fan or a Liverpool fan that as well your your focus is probably much more on your own team than the the collective thing of Premier League football mm, I think maybe right. mm. anyway look again best of luck with the uh, with the release of 89 um, thank you, thank you for, uh, for chatting to me about it and we'll catch up with you soon take Thank you to Amy. You can find her on Twitter at AmyLawrence71. That is at AmyLawrence71. And if you haven't yet seen the trailer for 89, the film, uh, just go to Google or your search engine of choice, whether it's Bing or Alta Vista or Ask Jeeves, Searchy McGee, whatever it is, just uh, pop in 89, the film there, and it will uh, it will return a result that you can then watch on your computerized device right until the very end. It's well worth it. Two minutes of 92 minutes of a film that I'm very, very excited to see. Uh, I hope they've got some new footage of Steve McMahon. Steve McMahon and his one-minute finger should have been a cartoon in Viz or an indie band or something anyway maybe we should just enjoy it for what it is, uh, a timeless, unforgettable sporting moment, an achievement against the odds. But, you know, if there is the chance to to laugh at somebody else along the way, I'm, I'm on for that. I'm on for it. I'm sorry, Steve McMahon and your one-minute finger. I'll never forget you. Just remember that, Steve, and your one-minute finger. You live long in my brain. If one day I'm lying there on a bed and I can't remember shit, can't remember the name of my dog, don't know what day of the week it is, don't know my own name, 
I'm going to remember that fucking finger. You better believe it, Steve McMahon. Anyway, uh, very quickly, before the end of the podcast, some team news. Lauren Koscielny, who's got a, an Achilles problem, he is going to have a fitness test. And if he comes through the fitness test, he'll play. Because we've got no Mustafi, as we talked about a bit earlier, four to six weeks with a thigh injury for him. Kolasinac has got a bit of a... Uh, a hip problem, so he's going to be checked out. Mesut Ozil back in the squad. Danny Welbeck back in the squad. And, uh, you know, we should be all okay for a game against Watford. Not going to be easy because they're obviously playing very well. New manager Marco Silva. Could he be the one? Could he be the next one? The one who everybody says should take over from Arsene Wenger. And within 18 months, his career is in the toilet, like so many that came before him. Maybe he could be the actual one. Who knows? He looks like a very good manager. He's got Watford playing some good stuff. It's not going to be an easy game, but hopefully it's one that we can take the three points from. And I think, do we have a, do we have a Europa League action next week? We could do. Come on, Arsenal.com. Load faster. Uh, results. Uh, yes, we do. Next Thursday, we've got Red Star Belgrade away from home. So uh, we'll figure out our podcast schedule for next Friday. But James and I will be here on Monday. We'll have an Arscast Extra for you. We'll be looking back at the Watford game and everything else in between. Thank you, as ever, for listening, subscribing, uh, for your comments and feedback. Really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you to uh, Johnny Massacre for the music, the little uh, intro and outro music to the Emmy Lawrence interview. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Guy, oh, Jesus, my watch is telling me to move again. God damn it. Catch you on the next one, folks. Cheers. Bye-bye. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.